The following message is presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Now the message. I don't know. We just human, aren't we? But I hope that we can get along. <clears throat> Many of you, I'm sure, have studied and are quite well aware of what we call the Bataan, Bataan Death March. When I pastored in First Baptist Church in Gina, Louisiana, one of the men that was actively involved in church there actually was a part of that. But it was such a tragedy that he would not even talk about what had gone on that day. Uh, not that day, that whole march. I did a little research and found that <clears throat> in the Philippines, in World War II, the Japanese had come and captured multitude of soldiers. And let me give you some information about that in case you don't remember. They failed to supply the prisoners with food and water until they reached the city that they were going to. Many of the prisoners, according to this story, died along the way of heat exhaustion. Prisoners were given no food or water for the first three days of their travel, were allowed only to drink water from the mud holes alongside the road. Japanese troops would frequently beat and bayonet prisoners who began to fall behind or were unable to walk. Overtrouded conditions in the prison where they marched to with poor hygiene caused dysentery and a lot of other diseases. Listen to this. <clears throat> These prisoners were beaten. They were starved as they marched. Those who fell were bayoneted, meaning they stuck them with the bayonets on the end of their rifles. Some of those who fell were beheaded by the Japanese officers who were practicing with their samurai swords from horseback. They felt like any prisoner or warrior that surrendered did not deserve to die. It's estimated that 10,000 soldiers died or were put to death, a thousand of those being from the United States. They were forced to march several miles, 30 to 50 miles a day, and many, many were killed. That death march, as it's called, was not the first death march. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we find that Jesus was on a death march. He knew exactly where he was going, and why he was going to Jerusalem. I invite you to open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Luke because verse 51 is a transition. It transitions us from all that Luke and Jesus had been doing and Luke was recording up to this point. And from this point forward, Jesus is facing Jerusalem, facing 
what he knew was to be his destiny, he would be eventually crucified on a cross. This probably is the last six months of Jesus' public ministry. Though Luke records that he is headed toward Jerusalem, he does not arrive in Luke's gospel until the 19th chapter when he comes in on Palm Sunday. And the things that happen between Luke 9.51 and following shows us the very heart of God, how the Lord came to minister and to seek and to save those who were lost. If you have your Bibles, I want to read that first paragraph, beginning in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, and then the following paragraph that talks about the cost of commitment. When I or you invite Jesus into our heart to save us, that's not the end of the story. He invites us to follow Him, meaning that He becomes the Lord of our life. He becomes the boss of our existence. He becomes the one that we serve without any reservation. And the illustrations that He gives in that second paragraph will help us understand that there is a cost it may be financial, it may be physical, it may be emotional. Whatever the Lord calls us to do and to be, He knows who we are, what we're about, and what we need to accomplish. So pay close attention to how Luke records these events in the life of Jesus. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for Him to be received up, that means his ascension, that he steadfastly, I want you to underline that word in your mind, if not in your Bible, because we're going to come back to it. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face. As they went, they entered into a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they, that is the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? He, that is Jesus, turned and rebuked them, that is his two disciples, and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're speaking of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now the cost of discipleship is the next paragraph. Follow along as I read. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road. Someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to him, 
No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. These are pretty harsh words, aren't they? They show, they show us that Jesus is committed to his mission and that he invites us, you and me, to be also committed to his mission. I see several things in here in that first paragraph I read that we see Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming was to change the hearts of people so that they could receive the gift of eternal life. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. You go back to the fourth chapter of Luke and you'll see when Jesus first introduced the fact in his village of Nazareth that he was the Messiah, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 51, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to do all the things that he was doing in his ministry, to preach the gospel of hope, to open the eyes of the blind, to release the prisoners from the, from the prison of sin that they're in. I came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus' ultimate purpose is to save them. And nothing, nothing would deter him from his mission. Did he know what he was facing? Yes. Can you imagine what it would be like for you to know the immediate future of your life? What if you knew that in 10 days you were going to have a head-on collision and would be crippled for the rest of your life? What if you knew that you were going to be diagnosed with an incurable disease? What if you knew some horrible things were going to happen to your children or your grandchildren? How would you face the future? I'm glad God does not reveal the future, the immediate future to us, but talks to us about our eternal future because I'd be afraid to get up in the morning, wouldn't you? But listen, Jesus knew without a doubt what he was facing when he set his face toward Jerusalem. Now that word... I've called to your attention. I wanted you to underline in your mind, steadfastly. That word can mean he determined to go. That word means he, uh, he's, he was resolute in his determination. Nothing would hinder him from going there. But did he understand? Well, just look back in Matthew chapter 9 and Look at some of the places where the Scripture says that he knew what he was facing. In fact, in verse uh, 21, it says, He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Did Jesus know what he was doing? Yes, and he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. In that same chapter, look down in verse 24 and following. I'm going to begin reading, uh, in fact, in verse 30. Behold, two men talk with him, that is, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. That means Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about 
his execution, his crucifixion in Jerusalem, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The disciples again didn't believe him. Look in chapter 9, verse 43. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They didn't understand the saying. was hidden from them. They did not perceive what Jesus was saying to them. Look at verse 51. Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew the consequences of his obedience to the will of the Father. And yet he resolutely, he determined, he made up his mind, he set his face toward Jerusalem knowing what was about to happen. I am grateful that we have a God who knows the future but he does not let anything deter him from his purpose. How I wish I had that kind of determination as well. I see in this passage of Scripture, his ultimate purpose was to seek and to save those who were lost. Now, they were in the area where the woman at the well had met Jesus Previously, they were in Samaria, a place hated by the Jews, and Jews were hated by them because of some stuff in their history. Jesus sent the disciples to go make reservations at probably Motel 6. Go to McDonald's and get us something to eat, and we'll spend a day or two here. When they got into the city, wherever it was, the Samaritan said, get out of here. We don't want you here. And the disciples came back. They were enraged. Lord, do you know what they said? They don't want us to stay in their city. Do you want us to call down fire like Elijah did? Do you remember that story? Second Kings chapter 1. The king of Israel got sick was scared. Go and ask the priest of a foreign god, the god of Eklon, if I'm going to survive. Well, they started out and God spoke to Elijah who was sitting up on a hill and he said, Elijah, go and intercept these men. Second Kings chapter 1, you ought to read it. Elijah met them and he said, Is there no God in Israel? Why are you going to this foreign God? He's not really a God. Those men went back to the king and he said, How'd you get back so quick? They said, There was a man who told us there was a God in Israel that we ought to be asking questions of. And the king said, That's got to be Elijah. How was he dressed? Oh, he was wild. He had long hair. He had... I guess he had tattoos, but he had a leather girdle around him, and uh, uh, he was crazy looking. That's Elijah. You know what the king did? He sent a captain with 50 men to go and tell Elijah to come and speak to him. And when those 50 men and their captain was there, fire from heaven fell and killed all of them. 
the king sent another soldier and 50 men. And the same thing happened. 50, fire from heaven consumed. A third time the king sent a representative and 50. And that captain was so afraid because he knew what had happened to the other hundred. He fell down at Elijah's feet and interceded, Oh, please, save my life and the man and all of these. Please just come to the king and talk to him. And Elijah said the same thing he had said to the other two. There is a God in Israel. Don't be seeking false gods. And Elijah said, the God of Israel says, you're not going to get up from this bed. And the king Azariah died because God had said it. And the disciples remembered that story. Well, Lord, let us call down fire on this Samaritan village and destroy them all. And Jesus said, oh, guys, you got it all messed up. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy lives. I came to give life. And aren't you glad he did? When he says that to them and to us, he reminds us that nothing ought ever deter us from the purpose that God has for our life. And then he gives us three illustrations of what that might cost us. In that next paragraph, we talked to several people. And you see God's unmistakable call is to total obedience. The first guy in verse uh, sixty or 57 says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking or saying? Foxes have their dens and birds have their nests, but we don't have any place to call our home. You better count the cost. A second man, Jesus addressed and says, follow me. Oh, he says, I want to follow you, but let me first bury my dad. And then I'll follow you. And this is kind of confusing. Was his dad sick? Was he old? We don't know. Most likely, he was saying, I'm the oldest in the family, and I need to be here for my dad until he dies And then I'll follow you. And listen to what Jesus says. Let the dead. Is he talking about spiritually dead? I think so. Let the spiritually dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the gospel. Pretty harsh words. The third one came to say, Lord, I'll follow you. But let me go and tell my family, my friends, goodbye. And Jesus says to him, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Man, it seems to me that Jesus is harsh. He's turning away people who said they want to follow him. What he's saying to me and I think to all of us is... When we say yes to Him, we're saying yes to the Lordship of Christ in our life and nothing or no one ought to deter us from the purpose that God has for our life. I wonder about myself and I wonder about us. Have we looked at cheap grace? 
Have we thought it really doesn't matter what kind of life I live? It doesn't matter if I'm committed to the study of God's Word and the worship of God publicly and privately. Does it really matter that I give my tithes and offerings and support the work of God in the world? Does it really matter? And I hear Jesus say, yes, it does. Yes, it is important that you count the cost, but know that when you follow me, you're getting the best that I can give you and the best that you'll ever have. I tell you, this is serious matter. It means that every one of us are to follow the Lord. He says in another place in Matthew, or Luke chapter 9, If any man will follow me, let him take up the cross and follow me daily. To take up the cross did not to mean to wear it around your neck as a bracelet or a necklace. No, it meant to be willing to go to whatever extreme to be faithful to the call of God in our life. And I find myself so weak sometimes when it comes to being disciplined in the things of God. And I see the same thing in the life of most churches today, don't you? Oh my, can't we see that He had a purpose in coming and He does not hesitate to tell us that it's important that we count the cost. Jesus said in Matthew 7.33, Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He calls for undeniable obedience. I reference chapter 18 because, you see, Jesus is still on His way. I'm talking about in Luke's Gospel. He's still on His way to Jerusalem. He's still committed to the cross. He knows what He's facing, and yet several months apparently have transpired, but He's still focused on who He is and where He's going. And He goes to the town of Jericho. If you have a map, you might look. Coming from the north, the Galilee down through Samaria, and then to Jericho. And from Jericho, you turn and go into Jerusalem. I've been on that route many times. It's a wonderful drive. But when he's in Jericho, a couple of things happen. He's focused on the cross. Got the weight of the world on his shoulders. The the sin that he's about to pay the ultimate price for. He must be burdened. What in the world am I going to do and how am I going to face it? And there is a blind man called Bartimaeus. He hears the crowd around Jesus. Knows who it is. And he begins to shout, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy upon me. And those around him say, shut up, man. He's busy. Cries out, Jesus, Son of David, mercy me. And when Jesus gets close to Bartimaeus, though he's concerned with the sin of the world on his heart, he turns and speaks to Bartimaeus. And says, what do you want? What do you need? 
And Bartimaeus says simply, that I may see. Jesus heals him. As they walk all the way through the little town of Jericho. By the way, when you go to Israel with me, we'll go through Jericho and you'll ride a camel there if you want to. Jesus sees a short man, kind of like Bo Owens. Can't see over the crowd, so he climbs up in a sycamore tree. And they'll show you a sycamore tree that's probably not the one that Zacchaeus was in. But anyway, when Jesus comes to that tree, he looks up and he sees a tax collector. The most hated of the Jews who worked for the Roman government. Doing IRS <laughs> evaluations. Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go to your house and eat with you today. Do you understand what I'm trying to communicate? Jesus has the weight of the world on his shoulders. His heart is burdened. He's headed to Jerusalem and he's about to be spat upon and crowned of thorns and scourged and nailed to a cross. And yet he has time. For blind Bartimaeus, he has time for Matthew, I mean Zacchaeus. If the Lord shows mercy and kindness in any other way, I don't know of a greater way to do it than to take time for individuals in me in need. Are you listening? He's got time for you. He may have the government of the world on his shoulders. He may have all kinds of problems maintaining the world. He may have concern for the people in Africa or Asia that are being persecuted for the gospel's sake. But he has time for you. Isn't God good? Yes. He takes time to minister to the needs of people. His undeniable obedience is seen in His own courage in facing the cross. His obedience is seen in His compassion for people who have great need. He's on His way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he has time for you and me. What a great God we have. I see an unwavering invitation the invitation is for all who will trust him as Savior. But the call is not just to trust him as Savior so that we get our ticket to heaven. It's to be obedient, to be the person God wants us to be in this world. To show His grace, to show His love, to live in such a way that people can see Christ in us as we live our daily life. Will you come to Him? Will you follow Him? What if it costs you something? What if it costs you some time?
Will you come to Bible study? In prayer meeting? What if it costs some people that you love? One of my dearest friends was happily married until he accepted Christ as Savior. And when he turned his heart over to the Lord, Harry Baker's wife left him because she didn't want to live dedicated to Christ. Would you follow Christ if it meant your marriage? What if it meant sending a child as a foreign missionary to Ukraine? I know someone who did that. What if it meant sending your child to Africa? I know someone who did that. What if it meant taking the gospel that you have to your neighbor? Have you considered the cost of following Christ? Are you obedient? There comes a time in every Christian's life that we have to make a decision about will we be obedient? Regardless of the cost, will we be obedient to Christ? Some of you may have heard of an evangelist, a Jewish evangelist named Hyman Appelman. I never met him. I have a couple of books that he's written. He was a son in an Orthodox Jewish community. And in one of his books, he shares some of his testimony. I want to share it with you. He says, I was converted in 1925. When I was, my people, including my family, turned their faces from me. I have no standing in my family circle. It was a hard and bitter cross. In 1933, I was pastor in a little town of Vickery, Texas. I don't know where that is. My father came from Chicago back in 1933. They traveled by train. And he said, I met my father from Chicago at the train station. Took him off the train. We hugged, kissed each other. Got into my car and drove home. But on the way home, he told me about my precious mother, my four brothers, my sister, how they loved me and wanted me to come give up my Lord and the work that God had called me to and come home. I introduced him to my wife and my children. During those eight days, my dad was there. Every day and every night, I tried in every way I could to win my father to Christ to no avail. He refused to even look at a New Testament. He turned his back on my cross And it broke my heart. I was in deep soul agony. Night after night, he would stretch out his old hands to me and with tears streaming down his face, in a trembling voice say, Won't you please come home? 
he would go to bed. And I would get on my knees and weep before my Lord. The day that he had to leave, we sat in the car, Pullman car on the train. He pleaded with me to turn my back on Christ and the church and what God had called me to do and come home. He said, son, mama's getting old and I'm getting old and you're our firstborn and we've done all that we could for you sacrificially as we knew how. Won't you come home? I don't have much longer to live. Cheer us up in our old age. I've got money with me. I'll buy your ticket. Don't get off the train. We'll send for your wife. We've got plenty of money. Come home. Again, I had to say, I can't, Father. It's impossible. Out of the question. He kept pleading and the tears splashing on his old cheeks. Every tear, a burning acid in my soul. He kept begging me and pleading with me, reasoning. And after a while, somebody said, all aboard. And I knew I had to get off. I pressed my lips down to my daddy and I said, Daddy, this is for Mama. Tell her that no matter how it seems, no matter how it looks, I love you. And I love her with all my heart. Then I kissed him and said, Daddy, this is for you. I love you more than you'll ever know. Whether you can ever accept my way or not, whether you can ever agree with me or not, I want you to know that I am just as honest and sincere as I know how to be. I jumped off of the train, got into my car, and started to drive away. But the tears blinded me. Parking my car near the station, I bowed my head and poured out my heart to the Lord that He would have mercy on my loved ones. What Hyman Appleman is saying is, sometimes the cost seems to be great, but we must never, ever quit and fail to be committed to the call of Christ, not only to come to receive salvation, but to serve Him as the Lord of our life. There comes a time in every Christian's life we need to say yes to the Lordship of Christ. Whatever it may cost, whatever it may be, Jesus is Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Maybe this is the day, the hour, when I and you say, Yes, Lord, I will put you first above everything and everyone. I want to follow you regardless of the cost of my commitment. How about you? Would you want Jesus to have his way in your life? Do you want to put him first? 
then what do you need to do? Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing the words, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I pray that I and you will let that be the prayer of our heart. Father, the words that Luke recorded are very difficult because it seems that you're turning away people that would willingly follow you but obviously had not counted the cost. Maybe there's some of us in this room that have not been serious with our commitment to you. Oh God, I pray for forgiveness but I pray for commitment. Whatever the cost may be, whatever changes in our life may need to take place, whatever the issues we may have to deal with, nothing or no one is more important than you. I choose today to let you be the Lord of my life and pray that you'd be the Lord of this church. Guide us. Help us. Show us the way that we would be able to fulfill that which you have called us to be and to do. I pray in Jesus' name. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about the church, including contact information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.